Old Testament text, Genesis 3. Genesis chapter 3. I'll read the whole chapter here. This is God's word, loved ones. Let's listen to it carefully. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of the tree, of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. And then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam, he said, Because you've listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree, of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust. And to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. 
Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man. And at the east of the Garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. And our New Testament text this evening, Romans 6, verses 20 through 23. Romans chapter 6, verses 20 through 23. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. What fruit did you have then in the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now, having been set free from sin and having become slaves of God, you have your fruit to holiness and the end, everlasting life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Thanks be to God for His Word. Now, before we pray, let me also read the catechism questions that we will be considering tonight. It's question 19 and question 20. It's page 870 in the back of the red Trinity hymnal if you'd like to uh, just have that open as well. Questions 19 and 20 of the Westminster Shorter Catechism. Question 19. What's the misery of that estate whereinto man fell? All mankind, by their fall, lost communion with God are under his wrath and curse, and so made liable to all the miseries of this life, to death itself, and to the pains of hell forever. And then question 20. Did God leave all mankind to perish in the estate of sin and misery? God, having out of his mere good pleasure from all eternity elected some to everlasting life, did enter into a covenant of grace to deliver them out of the estate of sin and misery and to bring them into an estate of salvation by a Redeemer. Now, let's pray together. Lord, we uh, ask You that You would make our hearts the good ground, the good soil, that as Your Word goes out, that our hearts would not be hard and impenetrable, that our hearts would not be the places where there are thorns and weeds growing up to choke out the growth. But give us hearts that are good soil, fertile soil for Your Word to take root, to put down deep roots, and to grow up into abundant fruitfulness. We pray You do this by Your Holy Spirit. For Jesus' sake. Amen. My Old Testament professor at Westminster, one of my favorite uh, professors there, Dr. Johnny Gibson, described the fall in Genesis chapter 3, which we read just a few minutes ago, like this. He said, The fall is like an earthquake in the architectonic structure of the Bible's story. He's saying there that the fall 
was not outside the sovereign decree of God, but it's, it's, it's wrecked such damage and, and, and caused such, uh, such uh, tr- trauma to creation and the whole structure of it. It was not just a little tremor at the surface of things, you know, that made things kind of wobble, but they stayed put. No, this was an earthquake of immense magnitude that shook the very bones of reality. That's what the fall caused. God had made a man good, made him upright, made him holy, placed him in a garden, given him communion with himself, made a covenant with him, uh, held out to him as the reward of his obedience, keeping this covenant eternal, blessed life in his presence forever, given him everything he needs to pass the test, reach the goal, obey God. And yet, Adam and Eve fall into sin and... It all collapses. It all collapses. Last Lord's Day, as we looked at this, we looked at sin. We looked at what sin is, where sin comes from, uh, what, what sin deserves, and, and how, how bad sin is, right? Just how, uh, how pervasive it is, how much it's corrupted us. But what we didn't look at in much detail is, is the consequences, right? The effects of that sin. What, uh, we, we looked at the earthquake, if you will, right? What, what, what's the fault line? What's the original sin that, that you know, uh, that, that gives rise to all others? But we didn't really look at the damage done. The, 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 uh, the you know, the, the effects of sin, the consequences of sin. This is what the Westminster Shorter Catechism calls the estate of misery. What, a, what an apt title, right, for human life. The Catechism says there's two estates that man has fallen into because of sin. He's fallen into an estate of sin and misery. That's a striking description, isn't it, for um, for human life, for our experience, a state of misery. Our culture doesn't like talking about these sorts of things. They say, "Well, let's um, let's pretend that everything's wonderful and balmy and and, and sweet," um, but. Uh, as much as we try to distract ourselves, as much as we try to um, uh, make ourselves uh, not feel the misery of our estate, yet at the end it, it, it comes, it gets us all, right? If nothing else, death itself claims everyone in the end. The Bible doesn't shy away from these things, loved ones, as our culture does. It, the Bible shows us in much detail, unflinchingly, just how bad how bleak our state of misery is. But it doesn't leave us there. It shows us our misery, and then it also shows us God's mercy. And so what I want to do this evening, loved ones, is look at both those things. Primarily, we'll be in Genesis chapter 3, unpacking where we see our state of misery here, and then God's mercy here, and then looking at a few other texts, including Romans 6, um, which we read earlier. So first then, let's dive in, in Genesis 3, looking at man's misery. That's our first heading, man's misery. In Genesis 3, 3, Eve summarizes for the serpent what God has warned them about the consequences of their sin would be. She says to him, of the fruit of the tree, which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you Die. Of course, he's adding to God's word there, saying, you know, we shouldn't, he said we shouldn't even touch it, 
And she's already showing some, uh, uh, she's already starting to twist God's word even in this moment. Uh, but but um, she gets it right that the consequences of their sin are going to be death. But what does that mean exactly? What kind of death? I had a professor in college who taught early English literature, and he had us read this passage in Wycliffe's, uh, Wycliffe's translation. And as he had us read it in class, he claimed that the text actually showed that God is the liar and the serpent's the one telling the truth, right? He says this because over in Genesis 2.17, God says to Adam, In the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And the serpent says in, in 3.4, You shall not surely die. And my professor says, well, well who's right? What, what happens in the day that they eat of it? Do they die? No, they don't, don't, don't seem to. They, they eat the fruit and they seem like they don't die. The serpent's telling the truth. That's what my professor said. But to say that is to miss the whole context. We see through the rest of chapter 3 and throughout the rest of Scripture that God's warning to Adam and Eve that if you eat this, you're going to face death, death of every kind. That warning is so clearly carried out in the consequences of Adam and Eve's sin. Let's, let's trace those out. First thing we notice as a result of Adam and Eve's sin comes in verses 7 to 10. So they, they, they are tempted by the serpent. Uh, Adam and Eve are both there. Eve is tempted. Adam goes along with it at Eve's advice. And as Adam, the federal head, takes the fruit and eats it, that's when the, they both fall, and they both have their eyes opened to their sin. Verses 7 to 10, let me read those. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord God called to Adam and said to him, Where are you? So he said, I heard your voice in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, and I hid myself. This is the first aspect of the death God had promised, right? the death that God had warned them about. It's that they would lose their innocence, they lose their righteousness, that they would suddenly become guilty and sinful and have guilty consciences before God, feel ashamed and, and, and filthy before God, like they cannot stand before Him, naked and exposed in all their sinfulness before God. It's exactly what we all feel when we sin. That, that sense of right, our, our consciences, the guilt that can weigh us down and burden us. We, 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 can, we can suppress that. We can try to cauterize our consciences through, uh, you know, through, through continued abuse until the, until the point when we don't feel the guilt as strongly anymore. Try to, try to stamp it out. But it's still there. We all feel the weight of our guilt. We're terrified of coming before the holy, holy, holy God and having our sins exposed, and having nothing to cover us. This is the first part of the death that comes in after the fall. It's the death of our innocence, being exposed in our sin to God, being judged by our own consciences. But as fearful a judge as our consciences can be, 
and as Adam's and Eve's seem to be here, God is much more so. And that's the second aspect of death that we see in this account in Genesis 3. Not only are their consciences judging them and making them feel ashamed, but God himself is coming to judge them. And they're terrified. He comes to punish them for their sin. He comes to bring curse. Adam and Eve are under his wrath because they've broken his covenant. That's what he's doing as he comes down in the garden, as he searches for Adam and Eve. And in verse 8, we read that God came and walked in the garden in the cool of the day. The Hebrew there uh, is literally in the, the spirit of the day or the wind of the day. Uh, this, is, this is a reference to God coming in the Holy Spirit like a storm to bring judgment on his people. This is a reference to the day of the Lord, the great day of judgment coming. God isn't coming for a quiet stroll in the garden in the evening. That, that's not the context here. He's coming, thundering in judgment, looking for the covenant breaker, searching through the garden for them. And Adam and Eve are terrified. Right? They're, they're, they're scrambling to find a place to hide, a place where God's voice can't terrify them and where his eyes can't find them out. The day of judgment is here. This is the second aspect of the death that Adam and Eve are already suffering because of their sin. God is no longer only their creator and their Lord. He is now also their judge. And he's actually become their enemy because of their sin. And this, this judgment, this wrath of God against Adam and Eve, of course, is not just against them. It's against all mankind sinful in Adam Right, Romans 1.18, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. That's what we all face. Right? It's not just Adam and Eve in the garden, but all of us, all sinners everywhere, we have to face the just judge of the universe. Right? And, and, and he's going to seek us out. If we haven't repented and sought out Christ and sought the forgiveness of our sins in Christ, He's going to come after us and He's going to say, where are you? Have you broken my covenant? It's terrifying, isn't it? That's the second aspect of the death that Adam and Eve suffered and that we all, in our sin, are under. Third aspect of the death God warned about is His curse. Because of their sin... Adam and Eve move from being under God's blessing to being under His curse. They both get cursed. They get specific curses divine, uh, designed specifically for them, um, uh, uh, but, but they're curses that encompass all of God's creation. He curses first the woman. He says she'll be cursed with pain in childbirth and frustration and relationship with her husband. These things which have been designed to give her a sense of fulfillment and joy caring and being a helpmeet for her husband, bearing children, being fruitful, that very thing God has cursed. They're now going to be painful and exhausting and futile. And God then turns and curses Adam. Adam's made to work and keep the garden. He's made to care for it and tend it, and now he's going to find that his work is bitter and agonizing and, and feels so often like a waste of time, futility to it. This curse here that God places on Adam and Eve and on all of us, 
all creation after them. This encompasses what the Shorter Catechism called the miseries of this life, right? This this encompasses everything, not just pain and childbirth and frustration and marriage relationships and uh, uh, thorns and thistles and weeds when you're trying to plant a garden. This, This encompasses all aspects of life. This is why we have the futility and the, 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 the frustrations that attend every turn. This is why Job 5.7 says, Man is born to trouble as the sparks fly upward. This is, this is what we live in now, this fallen world. This is the consequence of our sin. This is the, these are the ramifications of the fall. We have health trouble, marriage trouble, kid trouble, work trouble, car trouble. Right? Everywhere we look. The rot and the rust and the decay. It's all because of God's curse on creation, because of Adam's sin. It's really like, it's, it's, it's death, but death kind of put in slow motion and stretched out over a whole lifetime. The miseries of this life. It's the third aspect of death we see and the misery that we see here. The fourth is this. Um, it's the culmination of the curse and its actual physical death. God says in verse 19 to Adam, In the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you shall return. Those are powerful words. Uh, Deeply discouraging, right? Um, Dust you are, to dust you shall return. The full impact of of those words, you know, you you see it sometimes in a a television show or something. Uh, It's rare that you see it in real life now, at least in, in my experience. But at a graveside service where the coffin is actually lowered into the grave right in front of the people there, and then the pastor or the priest takes a handful of dust and he scatters it over the top of the coffin. And it's such a, such a powerful visual. And he says, dust you are, and to dust thou shalt return. What a powerful picture of this, of this curse. Now in God's mercy and his, and his compassion on Adam and Eve, they don't die immediately. And physically. But two chapters on, Genesis 5, they do. And we get a list there of Adam's descendants, but every single one of them, the point, the text makes the point of telling us that they died. It repeats it over and over. It's like the chorus of that chapter. Lists the descendant of Adam and it says, and he died. Lists another one and says, and he died. And he died. And he died. It goes on and on. Just driving the point home of what sin has brought into God's good creation. Death is physical death, right? On top of all the else that we've said, this is kind of the capstone of it all. It's the great enemy. It's uh, uh, it, it, it is, uh, the great end of all joy and, and all pleasure and happiness and fulfillment in this life. It, it, it marks the inevitable end of all of that. It's irreversible as it separates us from everything that we love. And then there's one more part of this curse. Part, one more part of this misery. If you're not depressed enough yet, right? One more part of the misery that God, um, that, that comes about because of man's sin. And it's in the background throughout the whole chapter, but it especially comes out clearly at the end in verses 23 to 24. Let me read those verses. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the Garden of Eden 
to till the ground from which he was taken. So he drove out the man and he placed the cherubim at the east of the Garden of Eden and a flaming sword which turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. And that, that's, the, that's the final part of, of, of this whole experience of misery that comes in because of sin. It's our separation from God. All those other things are just kind of leading up to this one. This is the culmination of it all. It's the spiritual death of exile from God. What was Adam made for? What was Eve made for? Wonderful, sweet friendship with God. That's their design. And they've been kicked out of the garden. And there's a flaming sword keeping them from going back in. No way back to God, it seems, right? They've been cut off from God. And as the rest of the Scripture makes clear, this doesn't just mean a a, a temporary cut off from God because of sin. It actually makes us liable to the pains of hell forever, as the Catechism puts it. This is an exile that is an eternal exile if God doesn't do something by His grace. Paul describes this. 2 Thessalonians 1.9, talking about those who reject our Lord Jesus Christ. He says, They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might. That's death. Be exiled and cut off from God forever. This is what we read in, in Revelation 14.11. The smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. And they have no rest day or night. That is the culmination of our misery. The result of our sin. To be cut off from God's kindness forever. Facing the unceasing agony of body and soul apart from Him forever. This, so th- this is the damage, right? That's what we've just surveyed. The earthquake was man's fall into sin. This is the damage, right? Total wreckage of everything, it seems. Now, that could be the end of the story, and that would be fine. That would be just, right? This is exactly what God said would happen if man sinned, that man committed an infinite offense because he committed it against an infinite God, and he deserves an infinite punishment. It would be just for God to just end it all and, and leave no hope of mercy. It would be what we deserve, what you and I deserve. But it's not what the Lord does. He pours out His mercy. He meets our sin with His mercy and He meets our misery with His mercy. And He delivers us from it. Let's look now at God's mercy. Let's go back to that scene in Genesis 3, verse 8. Right? We were reading there about God coming in and, and he's, he's looking for Adam and Eve in the garden. He's coming in judgment in the terror of the day of the Lord, judgment and wrath, coming to seek them out. But even as he does that, there's a note of mercy there. That, that he is actually, he's not just, he doesn't have to come down and, and seek them out. But he does. He condescends to come down into the garden and search them out and ask for them. To call them to himself. And then his mercy, which is implicit there and is very fact of his coming to seek out Adam and Eve, his mercy becomes explicit as he speaks to the serpent. In verses 14 to 15, God curses the serpent for tempting Adam and Eve to sin. And then at the end of that curse, in verse 15, God says... I will put enmity between you and the woman, 
between your seed and her seed, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And there, in the midst of curse on the serpent, is a word of wonderful mercy. Let's unpack it here. Three levels to the promise that God makes here to Adam and Eve as he curses the serpent. The first thing that he says is that he's going to put enmity between the serpent and the woman. In other words, here's the mercy already. God's not going to let the woman be on the side of the serpent. He's not going to let Adam and Eve be on the side of Satan. He's declaring war, and he's saying, Adam and Eve are going to be on my side in the conflict with Satan, the serpent. Right? He says they're, they're going to be set over against the serpent in conflict. Not what they deserve. They've chosen Satan's side. But by his mercy, he says, no, they're going to be on my side in this war. So mercy to them. The second thing he says is that the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent will continue this war. So the woman's going to have children, and the serpent is going to have spiritual children, and those descendants are going to be locked in a conflict for all history until God brings the end. And God is, by, by announcing this war, God is saying, I am not going to allow Satan the victory. Not now between the woman and the serpent, and not ever throughout all history. I'm going to keep alive a remnant faithful to myself that does battle with Satan. And that's the story of the Bible, isn't it? The spiritual descendants of Eve versus the spiritual descendants of the serpent. And then there's the third aspect of God's word here in Genesis 3.15. And it's the most important part of all. God says, lastly, in, in verse 15, he says the woman will have one particular descendant, a man. And this man is going to destroy the serpent himself. He's going to be wounded in the process. The serpent's going to strike his heel, but he's going to crush the serpent's head. Loved ones, the dust hasn't yet settled from Adam and Eve breaking the covenant of works. And God is already establishing the covenant of grace. Right? God hasn't even addressed Adam and Eve yet and told them what the consequences of their sin are. Adam and Eve haven't even asked him for mercy yet. They're actually about to refuse to acknowledge their sin. They're going to blame God. They're going to blame each other. And God is showing them mercy. He's already, before, it, before any of this happens, He's already making a way of salvation for them. Showing them His mercy. So that even as he goes on and places all creation under a curse, including cursing Eve with pain and childbirth, even as he says that to her, he is telling her, he's promising her that she's going to have children. That his promise to, to have one of her descendants crush the serpent's head is going to come true. She's going to have children. And Adam sees this and he recognizes it wonderfully by God's grace. And he responds in faith in verse 20. He names his wife Eve. Mother of all living, saying, I'm trusting in the Lord's promise to raise up a son to defeat the serpent. And then in verse 21, we see another part of God's mercy here. He clothes Adam and Eve with animal skins. They were naked and ashamed in their sin. They tried and failed to cover themselves adequately. 
with fig leaves and God makes them coverings, sufficient coverings through a sacrifice for their sin. And He covers their shame by His mercy. Now we see all these ways, right, uh, uh, that God is already showing Adam and Eve mercy here and laying the foundations of the covenant of grace. But as rich as it all is, it's still, it's still in a seed form. It's still the acorn. And it's going to grow. It's going it's to put out roots and it's going to grow into a great tree through the rest of Scripture. So let's look at a couple other texts here uh, just to unpack a little bit more this mercy that God is showing His people. It's, we're going to hop over to the New Testament and the text we read earlier, Romans 6, verse 23. It says this, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. Paul puts it so plainly, so helpfully. Right? The consequence of sin, the paycheck you get for sinning, is death. That's what you're owed. That's what Adam and Eve brought on themselves by their sin. And the separation from God, the abandonment to the wrath of God, the death they got, that was all the wages of their sin. And that's what we've earned. That's what we've been hard at work earning uh, right for all our lives. But Jesus, Paul's saying, has earned something else. The wages of Jesus' righteousness, eternal life. And Paul is saying, this is what is happening here. God is taking what you earned, and he's giving it to Jesus. And he's taking what Jesus earned, and he's giving it to you. God is taking what, what you slaved away to earn, death, by your sin, it's, it's the wages of your sin. He's taking that and he gives it to Christ. And Christ pays that penalty. He takes that death, all that misery. He takes it on himself. Suffers the full wrath of God as he's on the cross. And then in, in exchange, he gives us his wages, his reward. Eternal life. What is this? What is this eternal life? It's nothing less than what God promised to Adam if he obeyed in the garden, right? Adam, if you obey, you get to eat of the fruit of the tree of life. Live forever. That's what we were made for, that communion with God. Live forever with God in joy and blessedness. It's what we lost, what Adam lost in the fall. It's what Jesus has brought us back to by his redemption. And in the covenant of grace, loved ones, Jesus uh, Jesus' merit is held out to us. God freely offers to sinners what Jesus accomplished for our sakes. Heaven's open door. Now, loved ones, as we consider these things, I want to I ask one more, one more question as we, as we uh, conclude tonight. Um, what, a, what, what a state are we living in now? You and I, right? Those of us who've come to Christ, put our trust in Christ, the Catechism puts this in an interesting way, right? It says, first of all, that we're all living in a state of sin and misery because of our sin. That's the, res that's the result, in a state of misery. And we've looked at that in detail. But then the Catechism says that God, out of his mercy, established a covenant of grace in order to bring us, his elect, into an estate of salvation. It's the question I'd like to consider as we close which estate are we living in? Are we in the estate of misery still? Or are we in the estate of salvation now? 
On the one hand, you might say, well, we are still living with the effects of sin. Clearly. Right? We still suffer just like everybody else suffers. We still go through the same thing everyone else goes to. Christian and non-Christian alike get cancer, get Alzheimer's, lose loved ones. Pastor Leonard used to say, we are in the land of the dying. Right? That's all very true. We are, right? We are still in the estate of misery in a sense. Yet at the same time, something else is true at the same time. And this is wonderful. This is glorious. It's that we are already entering the estate of salvation. So we're, we're already tasting of, of what, it, what, it, what it's like to live in communion with God without all that misery. Right? We're, 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 we're in both of those estates, both of those realities at the same time. Physically, right, we're still here. We're still suffering the, the things that are common to man. But spiritually, we're already seated with Christ in the heavenly places, Paul says in Colossians chapter 3. He says we've been raised up with Christ. Our resurrection life has already begun in Christ. And we have that great hope ahead of us. And so for the Christian... Everything's changed, even as we continue, loved ones, to suffer the, 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 the things we do in this life. Even death itself has changed for the Christian. For the Christian, the way we no longer face death as the wages of our sin. Non-Christians, those who don't trust in Christ, they do. Death is the wages of their sin. But for the Christian, death is no longer the wages of our sin. Jesus paid those wages. He, he, he took our death. Death for the Christian is just the final stage in our being conformed to Christ in His humiliation and His suffering, dying to sin that we might rise in resurrection life in Him. This should fill us with wonderful hope and strengthen us for perseverance as we do continue in this, this life. Um, and and we, should, we should lift up our eyes from the sufferings and the miseries of this life, the consequences of sin that still do attend us, to our hopes set ahead of us. Right? We, should, we should fix our hearts on the words of Revelation 21.4, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. We should look forward to what John describes in Revelation 22, verse 4, the tree of life in the midst of the city. Its leaves are for the healing of the nations. All that wreckage of the fall, it's going to be undone. Jesus is going to make all things new. Restore all things in the new creation. That is the Christian hope, loved ones. It's what God offers to us as a gift graciously by his mercy freely not something we can earn he holds it out to us and says jesus earned it for you accept it and trust him praise god for his mercy let's pray together lord we do praise you for your wonderful grace and kindness towards us in christ we pray that we would yes uh, see clearly the the consequences of sin but that we would also see the glories of what Jesus Christ has done and the salvation that's held out to us in Him. Help us to lay hold of that and to walk in the hope of these things. We pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen.